This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with No Violet Bulawayo, author of the novel Glory. I had to keep reminding myself again that I'm telling the story of a nation and trying to keep sight the multiplicity of voices and experiences in that nation. We'll be back with No Violet Bulawayo after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. 
And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Noviolet Bulawayo, author of the novels Glory and We Need New Names, which received many awards, including the Penn Hemingway Award, the LA Times Book Prize, Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, and the National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 Fiction Selection. It was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Guardian First Book Award. Noviolet Bulawayo earned her MFA at Cornell University and has taught fiction writing at Cornell and Stanford Universities. She grew up in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Her new novel, Glory, follows the fall of the old horse, the long-serving leader of a fictional country in Africa. Glory centers on the drama that follows the nation of animals on the path to liberation when their leader loses power. Inspired by the unexpected fall by coup of Zimbabwe's president Robert G. Mugabe in November 2017, after nearly four decades as the nation's leader, Glory shows the country imploding and is narrated by a chorus of animals. We began the interview with Noviolet Bulawayo reading a passage from Glory. But the father of the nation didn't know us either. Didn't know that what was happening to him was actually the best thing to ever happen to us. That after the last election, he'd in fact rigged. Following the previous one, he'd also rigged. Like the other ones before that, he'd in fact stolen. Yes, after he and his regime had frustrated all the proper and possible ways at our disposal to remove him in a peaceful and constitutional manner, we'd been left with no choice but to become the kinds of animals to welcome his demise and welcome his demise whichever way it came. Because failure of leadership can change the heart of an animal, because callous governance can change the heart of an animal, because corruption can change the heart of an animal, because poverty can change the heart of an animal, because tyranny can change the heart of an animal, because the hemorrhaging of democracy can change the heart of an animal, because the massacre of innocence can change the heart of an animal, because inequality can change the heart of an animal, because the regime's ethnicism can change the heart of an animal, because the poor getting poorer and the rich getting richer can change the heart of an animal, because crushed hopes, betrayed dreams, 
the broken promise of independence, all of it has changed our once patient, loyal hearts so that when the father of the nation was waiting for us to show the defenders how much we loved and needed him to rise up in his name, we instead poured onto the streets to help them finish what they had started. Yes, to put the nail in the coffin. Do you remember writing this exact section? Not exactly, but I remember the general mood. And I remember it mostly because I experienced it online. You know, it was one of those seasons where you woke up and you looked on just to keep track of what was happening, but also to experience the moment uh, as a a collective. So I remember being in that space and processing all these different feelings, not just mine, but keeping track of, of what people were sharing in terms of their relationship with with the falling president. It was intense. Yeah, and so Gloria is really based on the, the, the direct aftermath when Robert Mugabe came out of power and and what life was like in Zimbabwe there, but you you created it through animals. There's no humans in the book. And can you speak to sort of where your mind was at and why you decided that was the most important way to tell this story? Before I settled on animals, I tried to write Glory as a work of nonfiction. At the time, I simply was interested in recording the moment of making sense of where we were, where we were coming from, and hopefully thinking in terms of what the fall of Mugabe promised. Um, But within a few months of of working on the project as a work of nonfiction and realizing that, you know, Mugabe had become a kind of this larger story. He was already larger than life throughout this reign, but his fall attracted so much interest and so much writing was coming out every other day. It felt like I was writing on a story that was already overwritten, that was already tired. And most importantly, I was competing with a happening story that sometimes outperformed my my writing. And uh, I needed to find a technology. I needed to find a a, a, a medium that would allow me to match what sometimes, um, for those who've been following Zimbabwean politics, what sometimes felt so bizarre and outrageous and uh, turning to the animal kingdom, which for me was really the first uh, technology of storytelling I ever knew, kind of allowed me to, to, to resolve that, that predicament. It also gave me the distance to kind of step away and also the space to imagine because it's hard to imagine when you're dealing with, with, with nonfiction, which is bound by facts, bound by the happening story. I could dream, especially toward the end of the novel, I could dare dream, project the story forward outside of what was happening and, and create an alternate reality. 
so that the problem ended up being good for me as a creative writer. It pushed me to find a solution that I think and that I hope works works better. You said uh, during that answer that you that you, the first technology of storytelling for you was through animals. Can you tell me more about that? This has a lot to do with, with, with my culture and indigenous culture, where the relationship between men and animal is always, has always been intimate. And I remember being raised in part by my grandmother, um, and being shipped to the rural areas where she was where she was based, she lived on a farm with my grandfather and uh, her three co-wives. My grandmother had four wives, and she was the resident storyteller. Um, this was the you know this was a, a space where we didn't have electricity, so. TV, the TV was out of question, obviously. So stories were sort of very uh, integral to our entertainment, to our education. And, um, you know, thinking back, most, if not all of my grandmother's stories really featured animal characters. And that is how I came into story. That is how I made sense of of the world. so that this many years later, when I found myself grappling with how to tell the story, um, and animals promised, you know, a way out, it was very easy for me to sort of go back to that past and resurrect my grandmother's voice. She's late now, but it was such a an experience knowing that okay, I'm I'm going back to her voice. She's not here. But you know, her voice uh, is something that I can still keep, and that culture, that that orature, uh, is something that I can now marry with the written word, and create something that is that is hopefully interesting and 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 fresh in a way. You were you were talking about the stories of your childhood. And that's so interesting that your grandmother was the resident storyteller. And I'm wondering if when you started going to the written page, and I'm curious how old you were when you started that, if the structure and the way you thought about storytelling was different, either because of the way they were told in your culture or because of the way that they were just transmitted orally. You know, when we be, when I began school in primary school, I think it's called, is it, no, I don't know if it's elementary school, around middle school, uh, third grade, as part of our English education, we started writing stories. Um, but of course, when you're in third grade, you're not thinking, I'm, I'm going to grow up and become a writer. So I, I, I really wasn't, uh, thinking that deeply about things like structure and voice and so on. It was in college when I took my first creative writing uh, class that I felt like that background actually served me, served me well. You know, it it, it, it had its own rules, um, its own methods that I didn't always find in some of the assigned readings that I um, 
I was reading in my in my college classes. So it was nice to have something that I could excavate and fall back on and also have shape my writing voice and continue. I think it continues to shape it even even now. I was curious about what your dinner conversations were like growing up, specifically about politics and art, but anything really. <laughs> it really depended on 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 where we were. You know, I grew up in a space where sometimes the adults around us didn't have much to do with kids. You know, our dinners, we were separated based on age. You know, the adults will sort of um, sit by themselves. And even in that division, men will sort of sit by themselves. The women will sort of sit by themselves. So as, as kids, we almost always found ourselves in the company of, of women, including my grandmother. And uh, we were not necessarily participants in dinner conversations. If anything, I remember being told to keep quiet because the adults were talking. So you knew that at dinner time when the adults were talking, you kept quiet. Um, it didn't bother us because that's, you know, that's that's how we were raised. That's how our older siblings before us were raised. That's how our parents were raised. And you really don't question much about how things are done, especially as a kid. But for me, the delight was listening in. It was eavesdropping. And I think I may not have been aware at the time, but I think that's where my training, my education as a writer began, because now part of my practice is observing the world around me. It's, it's listening, it's reading people, it's paying attention to, to language, how people speak, how people talk. And I know for a fact that I would actually, when it came to the classroom and we were asked to write, I would reproduce some of the conversations I was hearing at home, uh, conversations that I didn't necessarily participate in, but they formed an interest, what I thought was an interesting part of my world. So that was my childhood. I would also say that uh, it doesn't mean we were kids without opinions who didn't speak. We understood that, okay, the dinner time was not for us if there were adults around. But then we stepped out of the house and we owned the world. I think my first novels kind of gives a sense of that, of that childhood. We lived our lives outside. We learned to speak, to speak out, speak to each other um, outside of home. And, you know, the playground was such an important and delightful delightful space. We learned about the world. We communicated across different cultures. Um, I like to think of, of my childhood playground as such a democratic space where, you know, kids of different ethnicities mixed, you know, shared stories, shared food, um, participated in all sorts of mischiefs. And all that was, was formative for me as a writer, much later, of course. 
I love that idea too, as um, because I think when kids get together, I mean, it could turn out to be like, you know, Lord of the Flies or something, but that that's also like an unbound space for your imagination that in some levels, perhaps when adults are around, they bring the conversation to a more realistic level. But when you're just surrounded by other kids, you can maybe go farther with your imagination. I don't know if you experienced that at all. Absolutely. I think it was such an important and, and fatal time for, for imagining. You know, I have writer friends um, and nine writer friends, non-writer friends who, who were raised on, on books. You know, books were part of their household, ETC. But that wasn't necessarily the case for me. Um, but it's, 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 you know, I've reconciled with that. It's, it's, it's just really not a big deal because I think my imagination was sparked somewhere. And for me, it was, you know, just the social, the legal social life. Perhaps I shouldn't use the word legal because it really was, it opened up the world for me. My social life as, 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 as a kid um, was very bright, full of, full of imagination. In, in ways that I feel that makes me feel like, okay, I, maybe I didn't miss out from not reading, having somebody read to me at home because I did the equivalent of that out, outside. Um, once I, I stepped out of the homestead. Did you have any other experiences that maybe in a way pushed you into being more observant? I've found talking to a lot of writers that, um, like only children or kids with some kind of sickness or kids that somehow had to be separated from everything else became more observant, but in a deep tenderness that translated into writing. You know, in as much as I spent a lot of time on the playground, I was not a gifted, uh, <laughs> I was not physically gifted. I couldn't run. I couldn't dodge ball ETC. So when the better kids were playing, I was quickly, um, you know, I, I I was one of the kids to to leave the game quickly because I couldn't compete. So I again I was I found myself sitting and observing. I enjoyed my two minutes uh of play, but I also found myself observing and 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 listening and getting lost in my head. And I think because of that, um, I remember that I had a neighbor at one point, I was a bit older, um, who started having me write letters. She couldn't read or write. So she would ask me to come and write letters to the father of her son, who was, um, he was yet another family. but experiences like that, I, I think, kind of shaped the, 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 the future writer without me even realizing it because, you know, uh, I would be in charge of processing this woman's emotions, putting them on paper. And after I had finished, I had to write the letter in English, I remember, because the, 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 the men could not read my language. And after I had finished, I would have to translate it back 
to to for her for the 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 the, the neighbor who dictated the letter to me. So those kinds of experiences, and they were really consistent throughout my childhood uh, with a specific neighbor, really, um, I think, shaped, shaped the writer in me. I don't know if, you know, other kids elsewhere had those kinds of experience, were experiencing the same. But looking back, that was, that was all priceless um, and very formative. Were you tempted to give her advice when she was writing things that were so emotional or did you just stay neutral? No, I, I stayed in my lane. This was a culture that was always reminding me at every turn to stay in my lane as a kid. And, and I learned that lesson well. You know, I had to have a hard time later when I moved to the U.S. and I realized that, well, I was allowed to have opinions and and, and be heard and all of that. But that was... Yeah, that was a different chapter of my life. Are you any better at running now? Well, I run on the on the treadmill. <laughs> it's not a competition, so I, I, I am fine. I am fine. So, I mean, talk about staying in your lane. Glory is not staying in your lane. It's um, satirical. It, it talks about trauma. It's, you know, as I said earlier, it's, you know, basically takes place, um, after the coup in 2017 that ended Mugabe's presidency. And you tell it, as we discussed, through the all animal characters and all the animals kind of have their certain role in the book. And that is not staying in your lane. So I just wanted to see if you could share more about maybe this subversive side of yourself that came out. I consider my the page is the only side where I can be subversive in, in productive ways because there are no rules, because I write what I want, because I confront what I, what I care about. And for me, coming from a place that has been, that seems to have always been in a state of one crisis or the other, um, of course, the overall crisis being being tyranny, it's it's not even an option not to be subversive, uh, to stay in my lane because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make things better for me. It doesn't protect me. So that's it. It's 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 my my personal mantra so to speak that whenever i'm picking up a pen it's not just a matter of telling a story it's not just a matter of creating it's creating is the writer edwish dantica calls in her book is creating dangerously knowing that we are living in dangerous times that demand us uh, that demand more of us as as citizens as as artists as the Hence, glory is is the way it is, and I hope that my work continues in that uh, in that vein. So, what is it like for you to have this very personal, quiet, individual experience of getting all this out on the page, where it kind of lives in your own head, and then, and maybe it feels like a private act of sub- subversion in some way. But then when it goes out in the world, it's public and it changes 
maybe even how people see you, but also the national or international dialogue. What's that experience like for you? Um, you know, I'm, I'm working at a time where this experience is not necessarily uh, new or even interesting because a lot of writers are thankfully are creating in that vein. A lot of creators, not just writers, because all kinds of resistances are happening across all different forms of medium. But for me, what matters is knowing that our stories, our work, our works matter, um, whether individually or collectively, knowing and appreciating that they are part of a larger struggle across all kinds of borders. Just knowing that glory may have come from a specific uh, place, but it also speaks to tyranny anywhere and everywhere and, and across time. And, and for me, being able to participate in that capacity is, is really a gift. Yeah, there's a lot of of parallels in this book to what's going on now in Ukraine, to Trump in the U.S., to dogma, to religion, to silencing the voice of anyone that doesn't agree with you, and also the importance of telling your story. And I'm assuming that when you were writing this, you were thinking about your homeland, but also the rest of the world. And were you, when you were writing, did, were you conscious of kind of folding that bigger story into it? Absolutely. And the bigger story could not, could certainly not be ignored. Um, you know, the bigger story, we are processing it, we're living it through, through, through the internet, through social media. And as much as I tried in, in the beginning, once I finished with the research phase and was sitting down to write, um, there was a time when I was like, okay, I need to turn off my phone. I need to turn off the internet or write on airplane mode. Um, but so much turmoil was, was happening all over the world. I was working, I was doing fellowships during the writing phase and I was surrounded by writers who and people who were bringing this news, whether or not I was interested. And I remember thinking, okay, I need to stay plugged in somehow because it's impossible to work and shut the world out. And uh, sure enough, the world came pouring in in ways that insisted on me making my project larger to make space of the rest of uh, for the rest of the world, and it's 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 really you know it was one of those moments that that remind you again of your positionality uh, in the larger in the larger scheme of things. It 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 became a luxury to 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 tune out uh, a luxury that I could not afford. Yeah, so you mentioned that you kind of finished the research phase and went into the writing phase. How does that work for you? Do you do you sort of hold off on writing anything when you're researching? Are they combined anyway? Um, I, I hold off because the researching is again the observing. 
And um, for my research, I simply got on a plane and went and went home and went to Zimbabwe. I remember in the beginning, I had a camera. I was taking pictures and uh, talking to people. And uh, there was this one point I got into trouble with with an ex-soldier um, over me taking pictures. And I realized it, it, it became a turning point. I, I, I didn't want to deal with that, but I was also already feeling funny about being at home and taking pictures of people. But I, it, it became a turning point where I said, you know what, my research has to, let me go back to the roots of storytelling. And that is forget the gadgets and just talk to people. So my research was just me being on the ground, talking to people, living life, experiencing what people were experiencing on the daily, whether it was standing on a fuel queue for four hours. I remember experiencing my first fuel queue and I actually, uh, what do you call it? I actually uh, timed myself on my iPhone and uh, four hours later, I got to the front of the fuel queue and the, the petrol attendant told me that, uh, guess what, we just ran out of fuel whether it was crossing the border to shop for groceries, whether it was using public transport, where people were just sharing stories. So for me, that was the research. And because it was so alive and so colorful, I couldn't write because I couldn't do both. I had to be present for the listening, for the recording, for the observing. And after I felt like, okay, I have gotten all I need, a process that also convinced me to step away from looking at the seat of power, at the bigger players, and concentrate on these people that I met through this observing um, stage. I then shut that door and sat down to, to write. And for me, it's really important to separate the two because, again, when I write, I just sit down and let the words pour um, I remember I wrote every day. My, my writing day started at 3 a.m. And it's quite interesting how my system really got used to that schedule. And I think part of it is because I had absorbed so much material that when I told myself that, okay, this is the time to write, I could just get up at 3 and, and just write nonstop until, until evening for as long as it took to, to finish Glory. And then, of course, I had to go back and do revisions. Why 3 a.m.? It is early, um, but for me, it's also a spiritual hour. Writing is spiritual, creating, creation is spiritual. And what's interesting is that, and what I couldn't figure out at the beginning is that I just woke up at the same exact time without setting an alarm. It's like my body just woke itself up. In the first days, I would resist thinking, okay, I need to sleep some. But I wouldn't go to sleep. And I, I, I started just taking notes until I quickly realized that, okay, I could just lay there and waste time or I could respond to whatever it was that was, that was driving me. And the interesting part is that when I finished Glory, you know, I, my routine normalized. I... I, I went back to sleeping normally again. 
So when you created the characters and the lexicon for your book, including calling the beings in the book malls and females and um, Jidada with a da and another da, there's a certain rhythm and language around it. Did you sort of create that first or did it just come out with the writing? I think it it came out naturally with with the writing. Um, I did not work so hard in terms of setting the world up before I started I started writing. So things um, happened quite organically. I remember my the, the first elements that I started working with, for example, were characters. That that that, that very opening scene, I think. Is, is one of the first things I, I worked on once I decided that I was going to tell the story in the way I, I, I told it. And the rest kind of fell along as I was writing. And if things changed or got clarified along the way, I would go back and, and um, fix the draft accordingly. The world that this is set in the country is called... Jidada, and sometimes they call it Jidada with a da and another da. Is this a word that is real or where did this word come from for you? How did you think it up if it's not real? I actually made uh, made it up. It's, it's not a word that is real. I was looking for sound. I'm always interested in, the, in, in, in how things sound and uh, I don't remember the exact process. But I, I ended up landing, landing on Jitata. And the last two, I, I, I'm kind of drawn to repetition. And uh, I thought the last, two, the, the, the last two syllables were going to allow me to, to play with a characteristic of emphasis in Mindevele language, where if somebody's trying to, you know, um, drive a point home, they repeat uh, certain syllables. So it, it, it really felt like a good, a good fit to allow me to do that. And I'm glad that my, my editorial team kind of allowed me to do that without having me <laughs> explain it. Well, it's a real word now. It is. It is. And, you know, people are starting to refer to the country is Jitata. So it's, yeah, you're right. It has become a, a real world in a way. Do you read poetry? Is that part of where this sort of um, love for repetition and, and the sound of things generates from it all? Not, not actively, but I started, before I fell in love with fiction, I actually started uh, by taking poetry workshops. Um, and so I think that's part of where the love for repetition comes from. But I think a stronger influence is probably the, the oral culture, you know, stories that are told to you. And uh, I think there's so much pressure for a storyteller who's creating a story um, in their head and, and saying it out loud to, to capture your attention, to make their words come alive. And from my experience, repetition was always ever present. 
with these kind of storytellers. And because there's a big part of my writing that is a marriage between orator and, and the written word, I, I think that influence is, really insists on being present in, in, my, in my work. Yeah, I sensed. And there there were some actual like literal parts where you talk about the the importance of telling one's story um, and that um, that storytelling itself is part of what this book is about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, thinking of. Glory as a national project, as the story of a nation. And uh, again, going back to the time that I spent home listening, observing, researching, I really knew that there was so much of our history that was not told. I really knew that there were so many people who were sitting on untold uh, stories. And it doesn't really surprise me as I said before, that even in our families, we knew, for instance, as kids to sit and shut up and not saying and, and not say anything when adults were speaking. And you know, who knows the kinds of important stories we needed to unpack as kids, the things that were happening to us, for instance, that adults didn't know or that they needed to know, but couldn't because of these rigid rules of what can be spoken and when and so on. I think those things we took from the national uh, character, from, from, from the culture itself. But of course, the stories of trauma uh, are one of those. And I, I, I remember that one of the most challenging parts of writing Glory was finding out that I actually had that kind of story in my family. Um, that I had no idea even existed, but it came out um, from the consent party. Learning about the 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 the, the kukurahundi, this this period, this the, the mass matters that I write about in glory and sharing their own experience, and that really was uh, that really was dizzy. Yeah, so it it really became important for me, and I think that's that's why I actually centered destiny. Um, so mother and daughter, who both have their own untold stories of, of trauma, of the violence that they have experienced. And of course, it's only when they say them out loud, when they share those stories, that they create this avenue for their fellow citizens to actually come and acknowledge what has been spoken. And in this case, uh, it is the names of people who who have been disappeared. So there's so much and uh, so much untold, but that needs to be confronted so that uh, this nation of Jidata can not just not only reconcile with its past, but begin to to move forward, begin to dream of a future that can be possible. Yes, and this character you just mentioned, Destiny, she is someone who comes back. She was kind of um, a dissident. She was um, exiled on her own, like left, and came back. And 
she really stands for a lot of the atrocities um, for dissidents, her experience with her family of origin and growing up. I believe she's a goat. Yes. So why a goat? And do you want to share any more about her character? Why a goat? I I was thinking in terms of a goat being an animal that's not, it's not as imposing as the animals that are, that occupy um, positions of power in Jidata, for example, horses or, or dogs. So I, I, I kind of wanted to make her ordinary, but at the same time, she has this big past um, that she has to come and that she has to come and, 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 and deal with. And in the end, it's really not about the kind of animal that she is because this really could have been random. She could have been a pig or any other animal and still works in the same way. But what's important is, is, is the story, the weight of her story and what she does with it. When I'm thinking of spaces like Jidata, when I'm thinking of tyranny, I think part of the way forward again is for people to to find their voices, to tell their stories. And of course, I'm a writer. Um, I would obviously advocate for writing those, those stories down because they are part of our history. And I, I think they are very much tied to our future as well. It's interesting that in Jidada, the empowerment of people, of animals, of these beings who actually thought they did not have power can only be facilitated by number one, the return of an exile, you know, coming back to confront their past. And number two, storytelling is the storytelling. You know, there's that scene where people just decide to come and camp in this small township of Lozikei and throughout the whole night, they are telling stories something so simple and, and basic, but it really becomes a, a catalyst for change. Yeah, and, and the relationship probably too between trauma and storytelling. Like is there, does healing take place when we can somehow talk about what has happened, when we can confront it in a way, in a safe space? Absolutely. I, I think it's my, it's my belief. Um and from my experience researching and talking to victims of this specific atrocity, part of the hurt and the pain is the, is the fact that their stories have not been acknowledged, that they have not even been given a platform to say, this is what happened to me. And yet I think that is a very, very important part uh, of, of healing. I think it starts there with people sharing because to share is to acknowledge and to have somebody listen to you share that story um, is to make it real. And once those two things can happen, 
I think we can talk about starting to move forward. A conversation can then uh, take place. So what, how did you find the balance or what do you, what do you think the relationship is then between trauma and satire? Because we were just talking about trauma and storytelling, but satire can be maybe more tricky because there's kind of humor involved. There can be some, a lot of judgment involved and you want to ha- hold like on one hand, this compassion for the trauma. And on the other, your book was setting out to do something very specific. If that makes sense to you. I think it does. For me, the balance was respecting the trauma, knowing that they were people, these were stories of, of people, that they were real victims and um, trying to tell those stories respectfully. I don't know if that makes sense. And what I'm trying to say is not trafficking in, in, in real pain, you know, because these are real stories. They are people, they are human beings, whether they are still with us or they are not with us. And I think for me, I get there by trying to put my fingerprints with, with honesty uh, on, 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 on what I think matters, on what I think needs to be said. Because as you can imagine, there are so many layers in any narrative of, of trauma. So I tried to to center or to to write what I thought was important and necessary uh, for the story. Yeah, and I think if this makes sense too, because your book is a satire, it doesn't mean that every page is satirical. So you are you have some basic premises that go throughout, and for instance, the the characters who are who experienced that trauma were goats. But that's kind of where the satire ends on that part. So it's it's could be also this like knowing where to press the button on the satire and where to let go. And when you do that in the right way, it makes the satire more powerful, but it also makes the honesty more potent so that it's not you're not hitting people over the head with just one note the whole time. Does that make sense? It it absolutely makes sense, and um, you know the trauma is is part of the Jedada story, but it's not the, the the whole part. Just as Sata is also not the the the, the everything um, about glory. So it's it's also again coming back to 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 finding a way to strike uh, that balance, which I think is where the learning about craft and working on the on your craft can come in to, to help. And uh, I had to keep reminding myself again that I'm telling the story of a nation and trying to keep sight the multiplicity of voices and experiences in that nation and trying to find a way again to, to, give, to give them space in a way that makes them work individually and... Um, and on a collective level. It was challenging, I must say. <laughs> you know, it was not, <laughs> this book was hard to write, but again, it was a, a, 
a worthy challenge, um, especially as I think of what I was trying to achieve and what I hope has been achieved, which again is to tell the story of a nation and represent it with its complexities and with all these diverse voices and characters. I have one more question, which is just really kind of about humor, because humor is also a part of the book. And, you know, humor generally is often uh, the aftermath of pain. It comes later. It's not always how humor works, but that's how it works also a lot. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask you just about your sensibility about humor. If your if your parents were funny like how that got developed and how you, why it was important for you to fold that in as well. You know, I was doing an interview with somebody who said uh, they didn't think I was funny, nor violate the person until they heard me say something. And I was like, of course I'm funny. <laughs> it's just that my funny doesn't always translate um, in English. But I, I, I think especially now that I've spent so much time with reconciling myself and the writer self, I think the humor that is part of me inevitably comes through my work. It's part of my, it's part of my voice. I think people who know me on an intimate level uh, may agree that I tend to be on the funny side. It's a quality that I think comes from my, my childhood, which was not always easy. And I think I learned to, to use humor to deal, you know, to deal with stuff that felt, I, that felt overwhelming or that I couldn't deal with because I was a kid, powerless kid growing up. So humor is, is, is one of those things that, that carried me through. And it's quite strange in interesting ways that, you know, that has followed me through my, through my writing. Um, I'm very well aware that my writing tends to be on the dense side of things. And I, I, I think I use humor in the same way to sort of make bearable what would otherwise be hard to bear um, or to process. And of course, I'm thinking, consciously thinking of the person holding the book, um, trying to find ways to make them keep holding it. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are places where people will put it down, but humor is also one of those ways to, to, to make sure that my reader finishes the story because it's not just heavy, it's not just pain. There's also this brightness, this color. But I think there's always there's also something to be said about the capacity of the human spirit to, to endure. And I think humor is, is, is one of those things, you know, people laugh uh, in all sorts of circumstances, even circumstances that we wouldn't necessarily allow. I mean, associate with humor in war, people can laugh. I'm not saying that they are, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's something that you'd find often, but there are moments of, of laughter. And I'm thinking. I think I'm. I'm looking at the world like that, and the space of humor in that. In that respect, that it has to be there. It's. It's one of those things that you that that humanizes us. That reminds us that we're still human. The capacity to laugh. 
Can you read something from an author that influenced you as a writer? I am going to read uh, a paragraph from Gail by Jamaica Kincaid. Wash the white clothes on Monday and put them on the stone hip. Wash the color clothes on Tuesday and put them on the clothesline to dry. Don't walk barehead in the hot sun. Cook pumpkin fritters in, a, in very hot sweet oil. Soak your little clothes right after you take them off. When buying cotton to make yourself a nice blouse, be sure that it doesn't have gum on it because that way it won't hold up well after a wash. Soak salt fish overnight before you cook it. Is it true that you sing Bena in Sunday school? Always eat your food in such a way that it won't turn someone else's stomach. On Sundays, try to walk like a lady and not like the slut you are bent on becoming. Don't sing Bena in Sunday school. You mustn't speak to waffrat boys, not even to give directions. Don't eat fruits on the street. Flies will follow you. Do you want to share why you chose that? You know, I remember encountering Jamaica Kincaid in, in my early writing classes and just feeling like I had been given permission to sort of celebrate my, my language. There's so much um, power, so much attitude in her tone, in her voice. And I think I really needed to see that on the page. And it sort of freed, it sort of freed my own voice. You know, part of the challenge of, of, of being new at writing is, you know, and coming from a place where you could be doubting yourself and your place in a workshop is uh, not knowing what's possible. So Jamaica Kincaid has always been one of those writers who has shown me consistently what is possible. Can you share something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, I will share the very closing paragraph of Glory. And every one of them, Toluti, the ones gathered under the children's flag in Dozikei, outside Simiso's house, by the wall of the dead, and those looking at the flag from gadgets in the different wherevers of Jidata with a da and another da, felt their bodies receive the gift of well-being from the Nehanda tree, whose white fruits reminded them they were also Nehada's bones she once prophesied would rise. And every one of them felt warmed by the beautiful lotus fire. And every one of them had the flames of that fire fan and flutter and roar right in their hearts. And every one of them understood that whatever they had within those hearts was the new national anthem, Toluti, an anthem that spoke of the kind of glory that burns eternal and glows with living light. And do you want to share more about that one? You know, it was... I am the kind of writer who tends to who tends to write in a uh, mostly in a linear fashion toward the end, but I couldn't write this ending until I had sorted out 
the rest of the book. I remember there were some of my drafts where I was like, okay, I don't have the ending. I'm missing the ending. But what was interesting is that when it came, it came at a point where everything had fallen into place and the ending just came. And it was one of those uh, bits or sections that you really don't have to edit or revise because it comes, it just comes and, and feels complete. And I, I considered it, I consider it as one of those moments of, of gift, uh, of gifting where that feel like a reward for the work done. You know, it felt like somebody was saying, okay, here, now we're shutting the door, everything is here, and and the paragraph just came. Um, and I, 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 I am also reminded of how you can't force some of these things when when you write. You know, I, I and 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 I'm 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 glad that I've come to a point where if I don't have the ending, I I, I don't try to, you know, manipulate it or make it come when it's not ready. Um, it's it's an it's an ending that will always humble humble me because it came on its own terms when the book had done what it was supposed to do. Where do you write? Wherever I I find myself. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> I don't get away from writing. Um, you know, when it when it uh, happens, when it comes, the least I can do is just let everything else go and and sit with with the work until it's done with me. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I'd say myself. I'm my first reader. I, I guess I'm paranoid about showing somebody before I even know what I'm trying to do. So before I even show my first reader, I show myself and go back and rework it until it's ready for my agent, who is a great reader, by the way. How have you dealt with rejection? I dust myself off and uh, keep it moving. What is your favorite word? In written speech, I don't think I have a favorite word. But in spoken speech, because I think I exist in in those two uh, dimensions, it's the Ndebele word, Toluwuti, which also made its way to glory, and which I unfortunately won't explain. But um, it's inherited from one of my favorite storytellers, and that is my father. Um, when he was telling a story, every other word of his would uh, include Toluwuti. So I love that it's an inheritance that is a part of me. And since he has moved on, it's a way of remembering through my mouth. Yeah. And it was all over your book and it's, it's awesome because it can leave the reader to interpret what it means. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. It was a beautiful conversation and I loved the very thoughtful questions. If you liked today's show with Noviolet Bulawayo, author of the novel Glory, check out my interview with Mbolo Mbue, author of the novel How Beautiful We Were. She talked about revolutionaries in Africa, creating a fictional country for her novel, and writing in the collective voice. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 360 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. 
You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Zena Hashem Beck, Charles Baxter, Elizabeth Strout, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.